Welcome to the Art and Science of Success. I'm your host, Jonathan Brown. Now this 12-part podcast series has been created to help you make the most of the recovery opportunities, however long they last. In the last 12 years, I've worked with some of the world's top leaders, companies and teams to help them create success in highly challenging situations. And in that time, I've got to know some of the world's top practitioners and researchers into the toughest situations we can face. As we work to rebuild our businesses and even our communities, I wanted to offer some free resources and insights that I know help leaders because we use them every day helping our clients to deliver amazing results. So I asked them, what insights and ideas do you have that leaders can apply to help them survive and thrive whatever happens in the next few months or even the next few years? We have to find ways of inspiring our people to become even better and if there was ever a time for you to do truly great work, to truly be your best more often it's today. So I hope these podcasts will help you in some small way to create even more success for you and for those you care about. Today we're speaking with Elizabeth Sartoris, evolutionary biologist and ecological campaigner. Before we get into the talk, I almost feel the need to give a shock warning about Elizabeth. I first met her at a conference organised by my former business partner, Sir John Whitmore, and she was one of the standout speakers at a conference stacked with thought leaders. She combined an extraordinarily deep appreciation for the environment with practical ideas for forming a better relationship with it, i.e. one based on respect rather than plunder. So given the current headlines about global catastrophe, I feel that she's particularly suited to a conversation around that. But she may also seem to be a rather strange addition to talks run by a stress specialist. But some challenging ideas aside, she's extremely relevant as I found that stress is mostly a relational issue. It's something that happens between us, happens between us as people and us and the events and agents around us. It just happens to come through individuals so we blame them for having problems instead of looking at how we are all interacting together. So if we have an unhealthy or unhelpful relationship with others or with what's happening, then we can experience truly overwhelming levels of stress. Now Elizabeth has been working in evolutionary biology for over 60 years. She's written numerous books, collaborated with people like James Lovelock and Willis Harmon and spent many years seeking to build links between the different types of science in the world. That is, that we have Western science, but we also have Taoist sciences, Islamic sciences and Vedic sciences to name a few. In her mind, they are not primitive forms of real science, which is Western science, but valid approaches to solve some of our most pressing problems. And what she says about the links between quantum mechanics and Vedic science is absolutely fascinating. Now in her talk, she says things that I don't agree with, or rather, I don't know I agree with her yet. But that's one of the things I find so rewarding interacting with her work. She makes me think and gives my foundations a shake. And I can assure you that her work is immensely practical. From ways to boost your immune system to ways to improve your relationship with your suppliers. I actually use some of her ideas on ecology to help companies improve trading relationships. So with that shock warning, let's get into the talk. So um, you were born and raised in the Hudson River Valley. And I was, I was reading about how you, you kite on waters, cross thin ice, climb trees to see far and cross fences that said no trespassing. So it sounds like you were a bit of a tearaway. Um, made yourself to, got yourself to Syracuse University on a full scholarship, managed to study biology um, going against your parents' wishes because girls didn't study science, um, got a PhD in evolutionary biology, um, worked and studied at the Museum of Natural History, taught at MIT, Massachusetts, um, and now you're in Hawaii. Um, you've done pioneering work on ecology and taking a very different approach to science. Um, at one time you left academia 
and science followed you to Greek islands where you wrote novels and um, and, and created a, you know your view on 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 evolutionary biology. Um, you've been in Mallorca for a few years where we last had contact and you're now in Hawaii. Um, you're an expert in complexity, systems, evolution. You've written for over 40 years, I think, on evolutionary crises and how to handle them positively. Um, and, a fact, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to, to, to talk to you today. And one of your most popular talks is a TED Talk entitled Celebrating Crisis. Well, aloha mai kako, which is hello to everybody from Hawaii in Hawaiian. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth, would, would it be possible if I just started with uh, one of the first of one of your books, you have a, um, a description from Lyle Watson, who's one of your favorite authors. Would that be all right? Sure. Um, he says, dancing is surely the most basic and relevant of all forms of expression. Nothing else can so effectively give outward form to an inner experience. Poetry and music exist in time. Painting and architecture are a part of space, but only the dance lives at once in both space and time. In it, the creator and the thing created, the artist and the expression are one. Each participant is completely in the other. There could be no better metaphor for an understanding of the cosmos. We begin to realize that our universe is in a sense brought into being by the participation of those involved in it. It's a dance for participation is its organizing principle. This is the important new concept of quantum mechanics. It takes a place in our understanding of the old notion of observation, of watching without getting involved. Quantum theory says it can't be done, that spectators can sit in their rigid row as long as they like, but there will never be a performance unless at least one of them takes part. And conversely, that it needs only one participant because that one is the essence of all people and the quintessence of the cosmos. And that's Lyle Watson, Gifts of Unknown Things. Isn't that just beautiful? I mean, when, when he said that it's the only art form in which the dancer and the dance, the creator and the creation are one. And I just was so struck by that, uh, as I was by so much of Lyle Watson's work. And we, we almost met. He called me up from his yacht when he was moving from Ireland uh, to South America, I think. And he was going along my coast. I'm living in Washington, D.C. And suddenly, this is Lyle Watson on the phone, which <laughs> was wonderful. Uh, and he sent me some pictures I'd requested. This is when I was living on a Greek island before there were, it was internet or any of this. And uh, Jim Lovelock actually sent me a computer, which I carried up a hill on a donkey to my house, <laughs> learned how to use an old Epson QX10 with a green screen, a big box. <laughs> Uh, so uh, very exciting to, to read Lyle Watson's work and then to almost meet him. Um, and, and ever since, you see so much of Western science, as I call the science that's been globalized that everybody knows, um, uh, is so stuck on, on mechanical metaphors that it's very hard to find organic metaphors for things. You know, the heart's a pump and, and everything gets put into my, the computer is the brain is a computer, uh, you know, it used to be a plumbing system in Freud's uh, language uh, with valves and things that got stuck into plumbing. And, and then it moved on to, you know, up until it was computers and now parallel processors and things. 
everything was mechanical. And there was Lyle Watson saying, calling nature and basically an improvisational dance. And it made so much more sense because science is so based on we're the observer and there is what we observe. You see, we're not participants within our ecosystem. It's our environment. It's there for us to exploit. Um, you know, we don't see ourselves as part of it, which is, which is a big part of the reason why we're treating it so badly. But you know, and I think that's one of the, the key things about being a leader, isn't it? Is to, is to be aware of your impact on a situation. Um, and and, the, and the, what I love about, about this quote, particularly now as we're into 2021, is the importance of a person to participate. Because I think we've, we've lost so much agency in, you know, over the last year, we've been told to basically sit, sit in the lounge and eat food and watch television. And that was our way of helping. Um, when really it's now, especially now, is, you know, I mean, and looking at your life is what lessons have you taken from, from your life and your research and from your experience? Because you've clearly been a fully fledged paid up participant of this, <laughs> this, this dance on earth. Yes, you know, I'd gone to the Greek islands to write novels because I didn't think science was ever going to ask my big questions, which turned out to be the philosophical questions of the ages, namely, who are we humans? Where did we come from and where are we headed? And they didn't want to talk about that. That was philosophy, not science. Well, of course, the word philosophy, philos sophias, lover of wisdom in Greek, was the name given to natural science by the ancient Greeks. Uh, and they said the way to find wisdom for humanity is to study nature, uh, to get the clues from there. What else is there to study besides humanity? And you were talking about uh, we're co-creators. We have to get that. And if you look around your human world, um, I happen to, to, this is my swimming pool area, you know, of, of green nature, and you are in a house built by humans, showing your bookcases, the pictures on the walls, our computers, everything was once in the mind of a human being, right? Mm. Everything that isn't pure nature uh, was, or pure biological nature, right? comes out of human nature through our thinking up things and then manifesting them into physical reality, right? So we are co-creators who use our minds to create our physical world. And this is something that's very important. And it's, it's why I like using the, the keyboard model, both for the universe and for each of us. Uh, you know, the one thing that science, which has a, a science has a hard time unifying quantum theory with the standard model, the Newtonian, more Einsteinian model of, of reality. And they have trouble getting this together because in quantum physics, they know that the observer is a co-creator, that, that nature answers whatever questions you add, that the questions already determine what kind of answer you're going to get, and that that things are, this is a big mind more than a solid uh, physical matter energy universe. So the one thing that's agreed on, not only by these two aspects of Western science, but by other sciences from indigenous sciences to Taoist science, to Vedic science, to 
Islamic science. There are all these other sciences that aren't recognized by Western science that I'm very interested in. All of them basically agree that the universe is made of vibrations. And, and if you just look at, if you take a keyboard as a wonderful metaphor that, that shows you a sequence of vibrations from low to high, right? From slow to fast, from uh, uh, anyway. So if you imagine an infinite keyboard where the slow vibrations, the low tones are the world of matter. And then if you move up the keyboard, you get to energy, which was brought into Western science only when it could be measured. Before that, energy was considered sort of stage stuff, woo-woo, uh, you know, uh, not science, because science decreed that the world was made of matter. And so, and, and that it could be measured, that anything to be real had to be measurable with physical instruments, matter, made of matter, right? So Einstein comes along and says, Energy and matter are the same thing. They're transforms of each other. You can transpose the music up and down the keyboard from the matter keys to the energy keys, E equals MC square. Energy is a form of matter, right? Rarified, it's going up the keyboard. Now, Western science has a hard time measuring anything beyond that energy part of the keyboard in the middle uh, because it can only measure with physical instruments matter energy continuum. After that, the keyboard goes into mind, consciousness, spirit, whatever you want to call it in the high keys. And it can't measure that. You can't measure that with your physical instruments. So we measure certain aspects of it. We're starting to be able to measure scalar wave and stuff like that. But, uh, but you get stuck. Now, the Eastern sciences like Vedic and Taoist uh, they start at the high end of the keyboard with consciousness as though the whole universe is a sea of consciousness and you slow down the vibrations within that sea, like making surface waves on an ocean, right? And, and you get down that, that way to energy and to matter. So they were able to derive the whole keyboard just by slowing the highest vibrations all the way down to matter. Well, Western science can't get up to the upper reaches of the keyboard, and we don't realize that we are, each of us, a matter-energy-mind-spirit continuum. I'm not a body with a mind. I'm a mind-body entity, <laughs> right? Mm. And so when you, when you see it that way, you see the reason we separated spirituality from science was because science couldn't measure spirituality, so it seemed to be something entirely different, rather than something within which the quantum theorists started to find. And so every founding father of quantum theory publicly wrote or spoke about how they had to go to Vedic science for the basic worldview of a science that would explain what they were finding because the worldview they had been taught, which I called the foundations of science, the basic principles couldn't explain their findings. You see, Vedic science understood the world as fundamentally conscious. Consciousness gives rise to matter, whereas Western science said, no, matter gives rise to consciousness. They don't know exactly what it is, but 
sometimes in the physics books, you'll see consciousness as a balloon coming off the brain, uh, something mysterious. Yeah. It's very mysterious to Western science because it can't measure it. Well, <laughs> and, and it's known but, as a hard problem, right? Yeah. But, and it permits you, see, one of the basic assumptions of Western science is not only is the universe made of matter and energy, but you can study it objectively as though it's apart from you. So the keyboard can represent either the whole universe or each of us, or a bacterium, or a tree, right? All of those are mind, body, spirit, energy, uh, or mind, uh, Body, energy, mind, spirit, consciousness, continua. I mean, so we can look at this from a from a from a deeply spiritual um, level, such as a you know the idea of consciousness creating the world and um, and and where you know where an experience of consciousness. Um, but I, I mean, one of the things that, that I'd like to to think about though is is also the way in which you described um, a bringing something from. Um, you know, that, was, that wasn't physical into the physical. And that for me, the way you described it is the essence of the entrepreneurs that I've worked with is they had a vision and then they, you know, they, they, they then created that through a great deal of hard work and made it real. Um, and for some people, you know, the idea stays there. And I guess the idea is that, you know, that the products that stay more like ideas, they tend to spread faster. Things like Facebook and Google and Amazon, everyone's trying to become an idea-based business, aren't they? Or a database business that's got no boundaries, um, which is one of the most dangerous things for nature is when something hasn't got a boundary, then things start to get troublesome, don't they? Um, and so in that sense, and it's, I was just wondering about what, what role do you learn about intent and intention in this, in, in, in working, the uh, playing the keyboard? Yeah, well, it's very, very important. And, you know, I, I've asked myself often <clears throat> since now I, I should uh, be straight about this. I believe in reincarnation, or at least I accept reincarnation as a, a very interesting working hypothesis. And one of the things I love about it is that if you believe in it, then you have to assume that you've played many, many different roles in different genders and ethnicities and colors and whatever, you know, in your other lives. And sometimes you've been good and sometimes you haven't been. <laughs> and you may have wreaked havoc in one life and you've been a, a, a steadfast nun in another or whatever, right? Yeah. So it makes you very tolerant. It's one of the things I love about it is that you can't really discriminate knowing that you've been all of these things if you've been uh, incarnating long enough as I have been. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, but, but the reincarnation hypothesis um, made me wonder if, if, uh, if we all come and go from this world of spirit, you know, in life and death cycles uh, and things like that, what is the point of having a physical world in the first place? Hmm. Why, why would all that is, or big mind, cosmic mind, bother to create physical worlds because there are a lot of trouble happens in physical worlds, right? <laughs> doesn't, doesn't seem like the greatest idea in some ways. And I decided maybe the point of doing a physical world, first of all, extending the keyboard into the low keys. The music is much richer when you have low keys in it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> than, than if you can only play in the nice angelic harmonies. And uh, so that's maybe the physical world was designed to help unpack this process of creation from intention to materialization. 
Mm. Because in your dream life, which is in the non-physical world, mind, right? That part of the keyboard. If you think table, table's there. You think car, you're in it, driving, right? Uh, look at what it takes to create a car physically in the physical world. And we know exactly what steps have to be taken to put this thing together, to manufacture things, to write books and print them up and all that, so that we learn a lot about being co-creators in this physical world, don't we? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think that one of the things we can that, that people often forget, especially when they become stressed, is that, is that the environment is there and yet they're able to shape it to some extent. And so in that sense, the question is, as a leader or as, you know, as, as just an individual, is, is what is the environment prompting from me at the moment? And what do I want to, the environment to prompt? And how can I interact in a way that's more harmonious so yes. that, that everybody and everything benefits from, from my actions? And it isn't, you know, and, and so I'm not, I'm looking beyond the just purely looking out for me because that then damages the environment. And as I was saying in the industry that I've, I've just come from is that there's no one taking care of the whole. And, and at, certain, at a certain point, the whole falls down and then we all, no one is able to function because it's everything stopped. And I can see trends in our society that's, that's moving over that way of people withdrawing effort from the whole and just focusing on their own action. Yes. Yes, um, I mean, we're living in extremely interesting times. And now I like to talk in nature besides the keyboard about holarchy. Holarchy is a term uh, that, that is basically represents embeddedness. In other words, for instance, uh, uh, subatomic particles are embedded within atoms, right? And the atoms are embedded within molecules and the molecules within cells and the cells in organs and organ systems and bodies and families and communities and ecosystems all the way up to the whole universe. It's contextual in very different ways. And I have always said that meaning comes from your context. Your context is the story you have about whatever you're contemplating or what you're in. For instance, take a rose. A rose to a donkey is food, right? A rose to a lover is a, is a token of love. A rose to a perfume manufacturer is something to extract an essence from. Uh, so there are many different contexts that will give you a very different picture of that same flower, rose. And take, uh, if, a, if a human looks at it, it's a beautiful uh, pink rose. And, and, and if a bee looks at it, it says, what are you crazy? If you could talk to the bee, uh, that, that's red and white stripes there, uh, that, th that thing you call a rose. And, and, and then along comes a cat and says, what are you talking about? It's because uh, the cat only sees gray. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, so the perception and context all determine how you see things. Yeah. So, for instance, now take take COVID, this crisis that we're all in and that we're trying to figure out. Uh, you can have very different views of this crisis. You see, we know what the material world view is. Here's an evil bacterium and it's invaded people and it's being spread around and you do masks and vaccines and caretakers and, and hospitals and, you know, all of that physical world stuff and, and then shutting down the economy and all of the ways that that affects things. 
if you look at it from, that's looking from the matter end of the keyboard, right? If you look from the high end of the keyboard, say, oh my, we must have made a soul agreement to lock ourselves up. Perhaps that's because we've been so damaging on this planet that we realize that we've got to, to uh, you know, go into a cocoon here and, and rethink what we're doing. And whoa, look what happens when we lock ourselves up as humans. The sky's clear and the animals come out of hiding and, and uh, the, the pollution is less. And uh, we were told that there's no way to clean up all this pollution. And now just because we're locked up and not flying around anymore, not shopping as much and all that, these things are happening anyway. So maybe this is the kind of lesson that we've decided that we needed. Uh, that's a very different way of looking at it, isn't it? You know, it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. If you, if you look at uh, the, the material end, my concern as a, as an evolution biologist is that it took us 30 years from the time we invented antibiotics to wipe out bacteria because all bacteria were considered evil germs, right? And 30 years later, we realized that A, by practicing this genocidal attack on them, we've selected for the hardiest ones that give the most trouble. And so hospitals are the worst infections that can no longer be cured by antibiotics because the bacteria seems to have outsmarted us and furthermore, it turns out that the vast majority of bacteria are friendly and essential to our own health, that they're running our immune system, that there's 10 times more bacteria in our guts than there are nucleated cells in our whole bodies, right? and that they're making vitamins and repairing the gut lining and running the immune system. And oh my goodness, suddenly we have to bless them because they're so important to us. Well, as it happens, the bacteria billions of years ago, uh, even before they organized themselves into the nucleates, nucleated cells we're made of, because each of our cells is, is a, collect, a community of ancient bacteria that got together in a division of labor, like mitochondria are making your energy. They used to be like paramecia flying, floating around in water. Right? <laughs> mm. uh, so anyway, they, they all got together and formed us. And here we are now at this level, uh, trying to figure it all out. And the bacteria way back then invented viruses as a way of storing information, like through hard times, for instance, you can encapsulate a whole genome in a virus and it will survive a drought or a flood or whatever. And then uh, can come back by finding a living cell in which to replicate again uh, and, and spread information. Now, you have about 50 trillion cells in your body, and each of them is spitting out viruses and smaller fragments of RNA and DNA, the information language of our, the nuclei in our cells. Um, these things are, are floating up the rivers between the cells. The cells are like like connected by all these canals, right? Uh, and some of these viruses are just debris shoved out of the cell, garbage to be recycled. And some of them are address information packets. The addresses on that, you've seen all these viruses, the coronavirus with its protein coat around its RNA, right? Yeah. And that protein coat uh, has 
is what we're working on to how do we get this, this, these proteins to go into the cells so that they can make antibodies and things like that, that we're trying to work on with the vaccines. Yeah. But anyway, the, the point is that the viruses are just as essential to our health as our bacteria. And when we use these disinfectants that will wipe out, you know, it'll say 99% effective against all bacteria and viruses on the bottle, right? On the packet of wipes. 99% uh, effective means 1% of them are gonna get away. Which ones do you suppose can survive that kind of a genocidal attack? Uh, well, part of me- The hardiest yeah. ones, <laughs> the ones that will cause us the most trouble, right? Duh. Are we shooting ourselves in the foot again, as we did with the antibiotics, where now it's very hard to even make an antibiotic that works anymore? We have to come into balance with the microbial world. It's part of us. It has created us. We are dependent on it. We can't live without it. Trying to keep a, a, a sterile mouse, you know, that you breed in a lab alive is, is really, really hard because it doesn't have its microbes right yeah. to keep so, it alive. Know, so, so on that then, because it's a, one of the things of, of so it's so if I've got a if I've got an opponent, let's say just in 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 military or, or conflict terms, then I could try and get away from that opponent and I can try and hide. Right. Which is which is essentially the approach that we've taken to coronavirus. The other alternative is to say, well, how can I get how can I get stronger, fitter, more able so that if there was a conflict, I'd be more able to to handle it. So that's my first question is, what can I do to boost my, you know, so we've got the anti-back. Now, what can I do to be pro-back so that the bacteria in my stomach and in my body and, and, and in my yes. life, what can I do to, to, to strengthen that? Well, the very simple answer is make your immune system as healthy as you possibly can, which means how do you build a strong immune system? You got to feed your gut bacteria very healthy food, right? And you have to try to avoid as much as possible the toxins in your environment. These are very dangerous things and, and we're not looking at it the right way. You're, we're not understanding that we must come into balance with, uh, with the microbial world. A lot of these new, uh, really like super flus, which COVID is really a super flu. And, and it, they've happened because we've messed up ecosystems. And so the bats or the monkeys or whoever is adapted to these viruses, uh, they're, they've lost their homes and they end up in, in meat markets or in the wrong places. Uh, the deer that carry the ticks are now in our gardens because we've destroyed their forests. And so we've, we've made a mess of our relationship with the whole biosphere. Mm. And we've developed an economy that's a very predatory on the earth economy, as we know. We all know now that we can't go on uh, extracting more and more from the environment and throwing more and more toxins into our atmosphere and into our oceans. We know that, that we can't do that anymore. Uh, and yet it's very hard to undo that kind of a system, which has now gotten so interlocked with our health, presumably health system, that we have a single multinational company now called Bayer, Bayer which used to uh, originally was making the gas for the ovens in Nazi Germany and things like that. They're a chemical uh, company. 
And now they have swallowed up Monsanto, which is also a chemical company. And Monsanto is known for making most of its money on agricultural chemicals. Uh, Roundup, which I got banned on my uh, Spanish island where I was living before I came to Hawaii. And we're working on very hard to try to get out of Hawaii because we're the test fields for Monsanto. So Monsanto makes a lot of money toxifying the whole food supply, both plant and animal. Every, almost everything in the supermarket, if it's not organic, it's toxic from, to some degree from these chemicals by companies like Syngenta and, and Monsanto. So they're making vast profits, toxifying your food supply, which wrecks your immune system. And then the same company now, Bayer, is selling you the pharmaceuticals to cure you from the diseases you get when you don't have an immune system to repel them. Our immune systems are designed to repel the, the bacteria and viruses that aren't good for us, that we're not in balance with. Right? So when you say that the food that my, my internal bacteria um, likes and needs, are we, is it just simple, so organic food, healthy food, I'm guessing low in sugar, low in refined carbohydrates, what else would it could I do to, to boost it? The, the simple rule is the, the closer it is to where it's grown and how it's you know what it is when it comes off out of the ground or off the tree, right? The closer it is to that, the better. The le less processing, less travel. So to eat local is is important. That doesn't mean you can never have coffee or oranges if you're somewhere where they don't have them. But I know, I know communities, for instance, that are, are very into health in uh, Northwest United States who have a, a sister relationship with a Central American country that grows coffee that sends the organic beans up to be packaged in the North. And they have a reciprocal relationship. In turn, the, the profits that are made are shared back to the community growing the coffee. So, you know, we don't, we're not going to get rid of all transportation and all exchange, but what you can grow locally, you should grow locally. And I grew up, as you said, in the Hudson Valley, which was populated by immigrants from Europe. We were Polish and German and Irish and all that. And, and our shopping was to get into my father's old Model T. I'm 85 now, so this is uh, a wartime, you know, and before when when my mom would grow veggies, we'd load the truck up with those and we'd go to the fruit farm where there was a cider mill and a beekeeper for honey and, and all the fruits. And then we'd go to the chicken and egg farm and then we'd go to the dairy farm, which had one cow for us. And we got all the milk from that and we could shake the milk in glass jars to make the butter. Uh, and so, you know, everything was organic. There was no, there were no farm chemicals. And when you, by the time you got home, the windshield was so full of bugs, you had to scrape off a thick layer of them. Now you can drive for hours in the countryside without a bug landing on your windshield. Uh, we've demolished the bugs. We're demolishing the bees that the crops depend on for fertilization. We're being really, really stupid as a species that calls itself Homo sapiens, the those who know, we, they know the intelligent pinnacle of evolution. Excuse me? Why would the intelligent pinnacle of evolution be destroying its own infrastructure, which had been keeping us rather healthy? Hmm. So, I mean, because some of the times when I, when I hear um, 
things like that. I can get, I can feel overwhelmed and think, well, it's just too difficult for me to do anything. Um, but I mean, you, 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 I mean, I know you, I mean, you, you travel from island to island um, and you, you're making a difference where you are. So, you, so you're reducing the use of chemicals, you're, you're minimizing Wi-Fi or, or eliminating it. You're, you're, you're cultivating local relationships. Um, and also what I noticed, what I love the sound, what you said there was, was it was local or, and, and reciprocal as well. So if you couldn't get a local relationship like a coffee because you're in the Northwest of, of America, then you find a, you know, a harmonious or a mutually profitable relationship. Um, so then I guess, you, I guess from a, my point of view, if, I, if I'm not big enough to do that, I can focus on fair trade organic foods, things like that. So that there is a, so I'm honoring the relationship with the person who grew my food. So I was thinking one of the, I was, I was seeing one of the things that you were, you were focusing, you were talking about in another podcast was, was that there are lots, there are, there are good things we can take from, from this. And, and when you were saying about what do we focus on? So when we're in our, when we're in our mind space, before we look at then looking at the, at the material, then we, then I, you know, I, I could focus on one of the things that's challenged me this year is that is just what has been evidently corrupt practice and incompetent practice on my, on the local politicians in the, this is local as in the UK. Um, and they've been taken to court and been shown to have been doing a league making you know, very, very disheartening. Right. And so I could focus on that, which is going to affect very negatively my emotional state. Because I think if our leaders are this bad, you know, profiting themselves, blah, blah, blah. But then we also have that element of, of honoring the people who have done work for us. And in the UK, we had we were, we were clapped for the NHS, for our, for our healthcare workers. And then we broaden it and say, well, clap for the people because the supermarkets can't, are not closing. So they're staying open. So, so there's a percent, they're, they're taking a risk, they're taking care of us. So let's honor them as well. And there was that, that time of, of much greater kindness and awareness of, of how my life is positively impacted by relationships with people I do not think of in any way. And so in that sense, there's a very positive aspect to this that we could take from it. If we think, you know what, looking back over the last year, I'd like to forget most of it, but I'd like to honor that. And I think in, in that sense of, of being kinder to people around you, um, and if you don't know someone's name in a shop, then, then find it out, right? And be, you know, and just have that positive interaction. Yes. Um, and cultivate local strong relationships, which I know you do in any community you join, you're very clearly very active from a, you know, from the get go and making a positive impact. So how do you decide with a, when we're looking at the whole as a, as a whole on in a yeah. holarchy, how do you yeah. decide what difference to make and what, what contribution you can make? Yes. Well, one thing I like to say is when you feel like you're, you're down a deep well and there's no way out, <laughs> is something that the Polynesian navigators taught me. Uh, you know, they, they, in these small canoes, they could sail whole oceans. And a couple of years ago, a rebuilt traditional canoe from Hawaii sailed all the way around the world, the Hokulea. And it sailed around the world without a compass, right? <laughs> Uh, in this small open double-hulled canoe. And these navigators had umpteen ways of finding their way. Not only did they know the stars, but you know, sometimes for weeks the stars are covered in clouds and you can't see them. So you have to understand ocean waves and you have to understand magnetic directions and seaweed floating and where there are fish and, and where clouds form over islands uh, and loads of ways. And they'd say, when all else fails, 
stand tall in your canoe until you can see your destination. Uh, and they meant lift your mind up. Who hasn't been in a dull lecture imagining themselves to be lolling on a Hawaiian beach or something fun, right? <laughs> uh, we can move our consciousness around that way. So lift up and imagine that the world is a stage you're looking onto. You come out of your role as a co-creator, as an actor in this play to see what is this larger picture here? Uh, and then think about what makes my heart sing. Rumi said, there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the earth. Uh, are you a poet? Are you a gardener? Uh, do you, are you a musician? Are you, do you love politics? Do you, you know, uh, rather than getting discouraged with a bad politician, do you want to be out there, you know, exposing these bad corrupt politicians and, and winning people over into running for office? The American Congress is now full of women of color, right? Suddenly we have young women of color uh, in our government and, and they complain that they're, they're treated as though they're the help when they're walking through the halls of the Capitol. And we have finally a president who is, is doing a Green New Deal, right? Who's going to ram it through a, a, a recalcitrant Congress, Senate in our country, but things can change. And I like to say to people, even if there is huge disaster on the planet and humanity is decimated, you and your friends, your family, you can get through this. You can navigate your way through this perfect storm of crises by seeing how to live well now on the planet. There are these wonderful organizations from the Global Echo Village Network that's all linked up with each other to uh, uh, role model places like the Sarvadia movement in Sri Lanka, where 15,000 poor villages are in one association bootstrapping each other's economies. And the children are taught just two principles, inner peace and generosity. Can I be a peaceful person? What do I have to give to my community? Isn't that amazing? Then we have urban cooperatives in the Mondragon cooperatives of Spain, which make build bridges and trucks and washing machines and everything is co-owned. And, and there's only a, a six to eight fold difference between the lowest pay and the highest in the anywhere. So that if the janitor is making 50,000 euros a, a year, then the CEO can only make, uh, what, 300,000, uh, something like that. And they've worked it out and they have their own banks and international relations and supermarket chains and everything co-owned uh, and it works, right? We have these examples in the world. We can look to those and we can see what can I build in my own home, in my own neighborhood? Uh, and how do I build the relations that you're talking about, Jonathan, with people I don't know? Can we talk together? Can we get out there? Can we, uh, you know, get out there when uh, Greta Thunberg calls us or whatever, you know? We know what to do and we don't realize our own power. The power is in our numbers, what we do together. And you don't have to force yourself to do, if you don't want to do politics and you'd rather compose inspiring songs for a better future, go for it. 
Because unless you love what you're doing, you won't become an attractor to other people. You see, if you're having, I'm having fun doing what I'm doing. So people say, ooh, what does she do? You know, can I do that too? Uh, you know, you, you certainly seem joyous. Um, everything, every time I've interacted with you, and and seeing you in person, that you have a there's an energy about you that's that's extraordinarily positive, and yet you also deal with with terrifically serious, challenging issues as well. So mm-hmm. when you've faced, have you had times when you think, oh my god, this is just this is too great, or this is not going to shift? And if so, either how mm-hmm. did you get back? Or how did you maintain that, that, that perspective, which at times we can lose it, can't we? Yes. Uh, yes. And I do do that sometimes. I mean, just some, some newscast, uh, whether it's a tortured animal or a starving mother uh, trying to keep her kids together can throw me into a loop there. And I have to go back. I have to do it. It's like that sinks me into the well. And then I have to stand tall in my canoe again. I have to go up higher and say, we must work toward something. We must work toward a new story of what to, a new story to live by. We've been taught, you know, one of the problems with Western science for me is, it's we've been taught that this is a meaningless, purposeless universe running down by entropy. That has got to be the bleakest worldview any culture has ever thought up, right? Life in this worldview is a, is a temporary struggle uphill against this, this tide of being washed away by entropy, right? Eventually it too fails. So <laughs> the whole thing is like a disaster. No wonder we got into the shopping mode, you know, like get, get what you can while you can, because this is all going to hell in a handbasket, right? Mm-hmm. No, we can't do that. That's why we have to work on the foundations of science and why I want to show people there are other sciences Islamic science, for instance, is a science of a living universe. I've done these symposia where we, where we write out all the fundamental beliefs of that science. You see, you can't do science without having a concept of a universe. And people don't realize this. They think science, oh, science knows what it's doing and it can measure everything. Measure everything in what? In a universe. What's a universe? If you don't have some concept of what a universe is, you can't make theories about it or, or design experiments to check it out, whether it is like you think it is, right? You have to think up what you think it is. So the founding fathers of Western science said, this is a material universe that we study objectively, blah, blah, blah. And then they brought in entropy and all these things. I was looking at economics as well. You got me thinking when I was reading about, you're saying about consumers. And, and our model of economics is that human beings are agents of entropy. There isn't, there isn't, there's no... Well, that's true. The only entropy I see on the planet is the behavior of humans. <laughs> you know, <if> you... <laughs> so, so what we're doing is we're being educated to behave unnaturally. It was that the wonderful quote you got from um, Anaximander, was it where yes. everything in nature incurs a debt, which it must repay by dissolving so that other things may form. And the, there was a wonderful thing, I mean, whether that's, you know, Disney's circle of life, right, in that sense. But there's this whole thing about there isn't, there isn't the acknowledgement that we contribute and create and we consume, yes, but we consume yes. in order to create something better. Um, 
And I was thinking that's really just, you know, the essence of, of what you do or whether in a, you're in a garden or how you were talking about creating that, that environment around you or the community is that, yes, there is consumption. It's just that if we work together, then we can, we can make that, that me- much more meaningful and we're actually making things better rather than making things worse. Well, it's the difference between a linear economy, which is what we have, where we, we take from nature, we transform it into useful goods and services, and, and then we, we don't recycle the way nature does, we dump. So that linear ecology, uh, is that linear economy, economics, is about taking, making, and then dumping. And nature never does that because there is no dumping because what's waste to one species is food for another. And once we get that, if you build an economy in which everything can be recycled, Mm. and how does it get recycled? It requires the natural world to do the recycling, right? (laughs) Uh, Most of it. I mean, we can, we can, we can reduce things to, to biofuels and biochar in digesters, right? But, uh, but eventually that biochar will then house more bacteria and we, we have to do it within the natural world, not as though we were living uh, on, on a satellite, right? And so far we haven't figured out a good way to live on a, a non-living satellite. So once you, once you get the difference between life and non-life, which non-life is a human invention, uh, it's an invention, in fact, of Western science. Uh, I don't know of any culture and any ancient culture that has had a concept of non-life. To the Greeks, everything was alive. And that's why Anaximander could say, everything in nature that forms incurs this debt that it has to repay by dissolving so that someone else, something else can form. I said, someone, you know, I'm always asked, but, but don't you want to live to, you know, 200 where the artificial intelligence, we're going to make it possible. I said, then when do the babies get born? You know, you can't just keep on everybody that's alive now is going to live forever. And, and you're going to keep adding more and more people. We can see what that does. We see the exponential curve of the rise of humanity along with fossil fuel use has just exploded exponentially. It has to crash because we know it can't go to infinity. So do we want to wait until our economy crashes and and we all die of it? Or do we want to look ahead? (laughs) That's the choice. You give me a minute to think about that one. Hang on a second, just a minute. So (laughs) so I I can die a horrible death or I can open door B. Oh uh, yeah, right. Uh, or I can uh, kiss the earth and and eat healthy and build my immune system because more and more of these microbes are going to come along. COVID microbe, it's everywhere now. You know, you can't escape it. Uh, uh, you may make it escape from from the surfaces in your house that you've just wiped down if it was there. But how do you know? I mean, there's, there's a lot of iffy stuff about the tests, by the way. The manufacturers of the PCR tests will tell you you cannot diagnose the disease with this test. And uh, <laughs> You're going to get me banned from YouTube before we even The more you test, the more you find the positives. <laughs> and, that, and so you have these resurgences of uh, mostly people who aren't sick and some who are, but mm. yes, people die every year of flus and 
Superflus like MERS and SARS were worse than normal flu. This is another version of SARS. MERS and SARS went away without vaccines. Uh, we're not allowing this one to go away. I, I'll get yeah. banned with you. <laughs> uh, I, just, I just watched a wonderful talk by one of the Pfizer scientists who says a healthy person can't spread this virus. Little healthy children are being prevented from building up their own immune systems by contact with the natural bacterial and viral world out there. Yeah. They should be rolling around in the, in the dirt with their dogs and, right? and, <laughs> and being in school together and things like that. So I don't know where it will go, but each of us, you said, what do I do when I'm down in the black hole? I lift myself back up to see the bigger picture again. And I say, pessimists get nowhere. Optimists have the fun. Mm. And so I find ways to be optimistic about what's going on now. Yes, more and more people are waking up. Focus your mind on the positive. Because the more you focus on the negative, the more of it you'll get. Yeah. It's true. We are co-creators. And, and what's on our minds is what gets manifested. Well, I think so it just in just to fear is our biggest enemy. If we're terrified all day long of this virus, and children are raised to be terrified of all other people, especially somebody that might be out there without a mask on or something, you know, I mean, it's that bad. Or, or if I, if I don't do this, I might kill my grandmother or, you know, th there's too much fear mongering. Yeah. I say, I want to see my health system focus as much on the remedies as on the preventives. Okay. The vaccines are presumed to be preventives, right? And, and the remedies, which are used in other countries, I just watched uh, the Catholic uh, doctors of Kenya speaking about why they think COVID is not a global crisis, but a Euro-Americas crisis. Uh, and that, that they are handling it with, with drugs, with, with long-tested old anti-parasitic medicines that work. You know, and in, 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 in El Salvador, the new young president stocked 26 COVID kits of medication and supplements for free distribution to all his people. And it's working. And yeah. they're doing that in El Salvador. And Biden's chief COVID officer got on the evening news one night and said he was learning about these effective medications in Mexico. One, one germ, one solution oh, approach. Yeah. It's not holistic. Yeah. No, you can probably eat bottles of vitamin D by itself and, and that won't do it. If you if you're if you're swilling Twinkies and, and uh, you know, whatever your most unhealthy food there is, <laughs> if you're eating fast food out of McDonald's or wherever, your vitamin D isn't going to show up to save you. No, it's not. It's not. You have yeah. to get healthy all around. You need the exercise. You need the food. You need the fresh air and sunshine, right? Yes. Yeah, one hundred percent. Do you have any any of the any of the closing um, comments or advice to our um, listeners and viewers? Well, I'll give you one more little roomy quote. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? 
<laughs> we know what to do. And we need to talk to each other about doing the positive things rather than talking to each other about our fears and our griefs. And, you know, I'm not saying don't grieve. Grief is important. You have to get through the grief to get back to the light. But uh, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. Yeah. At the end of the storm, there's a golden light and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart. <laughs> right? 100%. Elizabeth, thank you very much for your time. It's been absolutely yeah. wonderful. Thanks, Jonathan. It's been fun. This has been the Art and Science of Success. I'm Jonathan Brown. If you want to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, be sure to visit alppartners.com where you'll find the show notes and other resources. And if you join our community there, you'll get access to even more battle-tested ideas to help you create success for yourself and your organization. You can also arrange a free call to explore how we can help you accelerate learning and performance in your organization. If you enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe and if you have a minute, pop over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to give us a positive rating. Thanks for listening.